Well, thank you all for coming to this wonderful production, which uh, you seem to enjoy. <laughs> I know we all did in the audience. Um, we're going to talk about some of the legal themes that um, all of you have touched on in this uh, wonderful play. And if you look behind us, we see contemplation of justice and authority of law. And um, those are some of the things that I think we're going to be talking about. But I'm going to uh, turn this over to Dan Kornstein, who has written extensively about the play and some of the legal themes uh, that, that are involved in it. And um, in your writings, in your book, you say, Measure for Measure is a play guaranteed to, make ju- to wake judges from complacency and get them worrying about the fallible nature of human judgment. Why don't you uh, take it from here, Dan? Of all uh, Shakespeare's 38 plays, this is the one that has more of the legal themes than any of the others. It may be less famous, and uh, it's often paired with The Merchant of Venice. But just consider everything that we saw just in the excerpts. uh, Judge Wolf mentioned a few of the themes at the beginning. You have law and the enforcement of morals. How much should law be involved in regulating private morality? When does private morality become public morality? Uh, Questions of privacy. Respect for law. What happens when people don't respect the law, when laws are not enforced? Uh, We had a dead letter statute in the play, but we also have dead letter statutes in our society. Um, I've often thought that the, the Bowers-Hardwick case and then the Texas-Lawrence case um, are cases that illustrate many of the themes that are in the play. Remember, those were the cases about uh, homosexual acts in private and whether or not they should or should not be considered uh, protected by the Constitution. Sexual harassment. We, we saw right on the stage in the play a perfect example of sexual harassment, and every time the play is performed, Ever since the uh, uh, Clarence Thomas and Nita Hill hearings, that's the part of the play that gets strong audience reaction. You hear muttering, uh, people snicker. Two theories of legal interpretation represented by the two statutes. On the one hand is strict enforcement of the law. On the other is equity, kind of a discretionary enforcement. Aeschylus in the play represents one. Angelo represents the other. We have a little uh, essay on capital punishment, cruel and unusual punishment, what it means to await the death penalty. Um, We have a a nice discussion on what is the art of judging. That's supposed to be the theme tonight. Uh, What makes for a good judge? How does a good judge deal with these themes? Um, And each of the characters uh, plays a role in trying to illustrate um, these particular themes, and I, I'm sure the panel uh, has a lot to say about it, and I think moderating this kind of a verbally facile and authoritative panel would be fascinating. Um, but uh, you and the audience uh, will have things too, so throw it open to the floor. What does Claudio think about Claudio's role? <laughs> Claudio is relieved to be alive. Uh, <laughs> I think the, the, the issue that probably strikes most uh, of the judges on the panel uh, uh, is, is the sentencing of defendants in criminal cases. Uh, it's a thing that uh, we do most often, at least those of us uh, on the federal bench. Uh, it's an area in which uh, there were no rules at all 20 years ago. 
um, or not, so few rules as to be almost meaningless. Uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, uh, someone who committed a bank robbery might get 25 years in prison, might get probation, might get anywhere in between. And it was totally up uh, to the whim or caprice of the district judge. The sentencing guidelines were passed. Um, they have become uh, tighter and tighter and, and uh, over the years and, and, and stricter or, or rather imposing harsher punishments. Uh, and this is uh, where the rubber meets the road uh, for most of us in terms of strict enforcement of a rule which is really what the play is about, uh, as opposed to doing uh, mercy. It's a very difficult issue. Some people see it uh, as quite simple. I think, frankly, it's quite difficult. Um, uh, and the judges, uh, uh, the federal judges, are, are, were not innocent in the process of the, of the federal guidelines becoming um, uh, stricter and, 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 and the passage of mandatory minimum sentences. Uh, in some respects, uh, they were like Chinese finger puzzles in which the more judges uh, struggled to get out of them, uh, the tighter Congress uh, tightened uh, the loop. But I think for most of us, that's uh, uh, probably the chord uh, that resonates most strongly. And did you feel that as well? <laughs> but of course, <laughs> I'm having a little trouble sliding from one role to the other here. Um, obviously, the notion that uh, Claudio, the notion of what happens when you have general rules for complex social situations. So the rule that Claudio must die for a complex social situation is a problem and also one that resonates with the public. The public, the, the, what was wonderful about this play is the extent to which the law became an ass precisely because the law became an ass, not to mention the rest of us, but precisely because it was out of proportion with the people's resonance of what justice was. And so this is sort of following along with what Dennis said, which is, uh, when the law is overly mechanistic and overly rigid and overly harsh and doesn't apply proportionally, measure for measure, uh, then it, it loses the legitimacy of the public, not to mention not being merciful. Let me follow uh, up on that with all of um, you who want to jump in. But what role should a judge have uh, when the law seems unjust? And the judges, of course, get the cases that come to them, the prosecutors in our system have the discretion. What, what role should the judge play? You asking me. <laughs> this is one of the questions I posed at the outset. Uh, I was a judge more than 20 years ago and a prosecutor before that. If there was what appeared to be a harsh prosecution, but a crime, the consequences of that could be mitigated lawfully by the judge. And there was some play in the joints. Uh, but it generated perceptions and, in actuality, at times, unwarranted disparity. That's what Judge Saylor was talking about. In an effort uh, to perfect uh, the system, something that appears to be more objective is created, but it really transfers a great deal of discretion from judges who exercise it publicly in our neutral, we'll hear the two sides, to prosecutors. Because once they bring the case, the judge's legitimate discretion may be little or none, depending on whether there's a mandatory minimum. I thought the play was somewhat ambiguous, uh, and I got vexed with my friend the uh, Duke, uh, because he didn't have a democracy in Vienna. He presumably made these laws. He made a law that said you could be executed for fornication, and then he didn't enforce it. 
And the only and it wasn't clear to me whether Angelo had the discretion to prescribe any other sentence. Uh, there was a general admonition that uh, you could that Angelo could be merciful uh, if he wanted to be. But we don't know what the laws were here. So I throw it back to a certain extent on the audience. If you want to look at the current implications of this, uh, we're fortunate we do live in a democracy uh, and there are. Some of us uh, were regarded as ferocious prosecutors until we became judges and now are wimps, uh, uh, at least according to politicians. But if, if this play is at all unsettling to you, uh, perhaps you'll listen uh, in a different way when people are politicking simply to be tough on crime uh, because we're forced to look a human being uh, in the eyes and increasingly, and I think uh, this is positive, also remember the victims. I mean, Angelo does say that if he does justice, he's helping the victims uh, because, of course, they're human, too. But there's the potential for every human being to get into the courtroom, but not into some very general and inflexible law. I'd like to hear from the chief prosecutor up here as to how she decides which laws are to be enforced and which laws are not. <laughs> Um, without my hat on, um, I, you know, as you were just making those comments, I was thinking, of course, in for death, you know, the penalty is still, at least in Massachusetts, um, consistent. It's a it's a minimum mandatory of life. And and in many states, it may be a death penalty. Part of what's going on here is not just is this uh, too draconian and intractable, but is it the wrong penalty for what? So that evolves as we look at. You know, and I, we've moved beyond an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, and in some states, for instance, in the South, not too long ago, you could get the death penalty for rape. And so as the courts evolved, what was appropriate or not, you know, I, let me just speak from the prosecutor's point of view. There is some merit in having at least a consistency that says for X crime, you will do Y punishment. Um, now, whether it becomes then unfairly applied as this play explores, as it so often does, is where it gets complicated, because then you may say, well, we want the flexibility and the, um, the mercy of judges to make decisions, but that leads to judge shopping. And I'm speaking, of course, I'm speaking about the state courts, not the federal courts, um, that it would lead to judge shopping. It leads to the person who can get the better lawyer, gets a better deal. There are all kinds of arguments you can make for saying that, you know, the law is the law and it should be consistent. None of us up here really believe that. And so the question is, how do you devise a system that is fair, is consistent, but also allows for the flexibility of individual circumstances? And the thing that I think is interesting about this play, as you look at um, the Duke who um, leaves because he's created the system, but he's let it go to seed. He doesn't enforce the law. And he, he, he asks someone else to do it. He asks someone else to do his dirty work. Then he doesn't like the results. And so then he comes back. Um, and yet, even in the end, he is not objective, nor is he merciful to poor Lucio, who has insulted him personally. Uh, and so the judge's own reactions here, Angelo uh, is fair and consistent until he's tempted by Judge Gertner, um, Isabella. <laughs> and so uh, the judges are human and they are subject to not being consistent by their own reactions. I'd just like to speak to, to one thing that I think Shakespeare didn't address in this play. He, he did not have a three-branch government involved in Vienna. Uh, we do. And the, the, the real 
problem that we judges have is who, which branch is to make the decision uh, first and foremost as to whether we ought to impose mercy or authority. And although some of us do from time to time think we have the right to make laws, we judges do not make laws. We interpret the law. And that is a, a matter that all of us have to keep in mind when, when considering a play such as this. Uh, Shakespeare left it uh, unified. The, the Duke made the law and could enforce it as well. We Uni- can't. Unitary executive. Unitary. <laughs> Last year's well, it, um, the Duke here actually is all three branches. He's making the laws, he's prosecuting, and he's judging. I think it goes to Judge Wolf's comment that actually I think in our system of those three different points, the least transparent and the greatest amount of discretion exercised not transparently is with the prosecutors. Um, the legislators do things relatively in relatively open, in a relatively open form. The judges, by definition, do things in relatively open form. But the prosecutors make decisions with a broad range of discretion that the Duke has here still. <laughs> now from the Duke. <laughs> the question... The question that I have is, in the instance where a law has been on the books, a harsh law indeed, but has been ignored, has not been enforced, what do judges do in an instance where that kind of a law is brought before him or her, where, there, where if there is a conviction, the, the result is a very, very harsh one, where the citizens have come to believe that if the law existed, for all intents and purposes, it doesn't exist? How do judges handle that kind of issue? I guess you take it, guys. Well, you raise something which uh, Bill was raising, too, which is when the laws are mandatory, the discretion slides to the prosecutor. Someone once said that discretion is hydraulic, where like a toothpaste tube, whatever you squeeze, it comes out somewhere else. So in a situation that you're talking about where there is a law, it's the opposite, it's not being enforced, the interesting question about who makes the decision then about when to enforce it. How come Claudia was singled out? That's one of the things we're talking about. Everybody's doing it. How come he was singled out? Who made the decision? Presumably Angelo made the decision or someone made the decision. And why did he make the decision? What was the motivation? In what degree is it, uh, is it above board? What do judges do in a situation like that? I think you ask the questions. And Mark is right that uh, uh, before the sentencing guidelines, one could modulate a sentence if you thought that the prosecutor had overreached or there was some issue with respect to the prosecution. The sentencing guidelines limit that, but don't eliminate it. I think it's, I think it's a little more complicated than that. We are assuming that issues are presented to us in black and white, and they are never black and white. So the question as posed is rarely, if ever, the question that judges answer. So judges don't pick between one thing and another. They take into account a large uh, ball of stuff that goes into any decision they make, whether it's in a criminal case or a civil case, but particularly in a criminal case. 
There are times when one's discretion is limited now in the federal court by virtue of these statutes that prescribe a penalty that may be no less than whatever the statute says, uh, and as to which the court then has no discretion to impose a lower sentence. Those statutes are draconian. They, uh, they are mostly in the context of drug and gun cases. And uh, given other disparities in the statute, if a person sells 50 grams of crack cocaine and has a record uh, of an earlier drug offense, he goes away for life. And the court has absolutely no discretion for less than that. So here the black and white becomes black and white, but mostly it is not. I'd like to come back to the issue that Martha Coakley raised. You know, when they originally start discussing my good friend Wayne Budd, the Duke, as benevolent, that was originally the way I thought of him, was benevolent. As it turns out, though, he in many ways is, is, was the villain here because he walks out of town and leaves um, uh, Angelo to enforce an unjust law. What's at issue here is that the laws were unjust, and therefore, when, if you believe in the rule of law, it puts a judge in a position of enforcing an unjust law. We see that um, all the time. And in particular, I, I noticed that Angelo says, um, I sh when, when uh, Nancy asks to show him some mercy, he says, I show it most of all when I show justice, for then I pity those I do not know. And so what this really boils down to is how do you have a system that's a rule of law when the law itself is profoundly unjust? I think the rubber hits the road a lot in issues when it's about morality and where there can be differences of opinion about morality. And that's when the mandatory minimum that we're all sort of railing against here, we have the greatest difficulty with. I just want to piggyback on what Judge Saris just mentioned um, about the Duke skipping town and leaving other people to do his dirty work. Um, I think that's something we actually see quite a bit in our society today where you see politicians passing laws that they actually hope the courts will strike down. Um, and we saw this with partial birth abortion, and we see it with a variety of cases, um, including the Violence Against Women Act and others, where senators have basically said in private conversations and sometimes publicly um, have been exposed to show their hand, and basically they they put forward these laws and vote for them um, to appease some group of constituents and then hope that the judges will do their dirty work. If I can go back uh, to, to a question, um, it, it, it sounds like there's this dichotomy having a rule or having discretion and like discretion is, is, is discretion is what we want in the system. The problem with discretion or with too much discretion is what happens in real life if you have uh, lots of discretion is Claudio gets probation. OK, Claudio is a rich nobleman. Claudio comes in with a good lawyer and, and convinces the judge that he has this wonderful support network and, and, and a great education and so forth, and he gets probation. And the black and Hispanic defendants who have committed the same offense do time. Now, this is not just something that happened in the benighted regions of our country, you know, down there in, in the red states. This happened in Massachusetts. Uh, this happened all over the country before we had guidelines. It's one of the problems of discretion is judges uh, tend uh, to, to react favorably to people who are like them, uh, to react favorably to people who have education, uh, prospects for the future, and so forth. And it's part of the problem of discretion. Uh, part of the tension is it tends to produce uh, racially disparate uh, outcomes. 
we actually have a, a situation in Massachusetts uh, that raises a number of the issues presented by the play. I'm not sure how many people other than judges would be sensitive to it. Uh, and again, it's in the sentencing area. Uh, there are in, many things are violations of federal law and state law. For example, if you're a felon, you possess a firearm or if you sell uh, drugs. Uh, there are innumerable people who eventually end up before us who've been in the state courts many, many times and have not received a serious sentence. They might be like Claudio thinking uh, this, this is not a this may be criminal, but it's not something that will be punished or seriously punished. Then, through the exercise of prosecutorial discretion, some of them are brought before us. It's a small subset of those who might be eligible for these 10, 15, 20-year mandatory minimums, and they really feel sandbagged by the system because they've been in court and never got more than three months, six months, one year. I don't say that as a criticism of the state courts or the uh, state system, because that's a system that is terribly underfunded. The federal government can print money so we can lock up as many people as we want. No, but, no, but it, it, seriously, it's the only difference I can think of. Uh, I think it would be a very valuable reform if uh, people would invest more in the state law enforcement system that for more than 200 years was primarily regarded as responsible for dealing with violent crime, the most important kind of crime, that uh, state judges had the resources to give uh, swift and appropriate sentences that hopefully would send a deterrent effect. But people like Judge Saris, uh, on my right, have been state court judges and now are federal judges. They give out sentences for the same offenses that are much, much longer. And it's just the culture's are different, the laws are different, but the primary thing I think is that the resources are different and it would really revitalize federalism if the federal government, which can print that money, would do uh, what it was doing, say, 30 years ago, just giving more of it to state and local law enforcement so it had the resources to perform its traditional responsibilities in our federal system. I should note that there are microphones on either side in the aisles, so if anyone from the audience would like to ask a question at any time, please feel free to come down and we'll, we'll uh, let you ask it. Let me uh, <clears throat> take up what Judge Saylor was talking about in one form and what Judge Wolf is talking about in another, and that is the corrosive effect of disparities. Uh, those of us who practiced in uh, federal court, like Judge Gertner and Judge Wolf and me, before the 20-year epiphany, uh, recognize that if you went into courtroom one, the sentence would be 20 years, and if you went into courtroom four, it would be three months. That's exceptionally corrosive. And similarly, that there is this disparity between state and local sentences. But ultimately, those are, to some degree, uh, choices that the politi has made. The real core of the problem, I think, is one that uh, is captured actually by the title of a book that uh, Jennifer's father wrote. It's called The Fear of Judging. Uh, what's going on, what happened is that uh, judges were feared because of a number of individual cases that became high headline cases and consequently led to the development of the sentencing guidelines in the federal court. They, you should understand the, uh, the sentencing guidelines were a product of both the left and the right. 
The right wanted heavier sentences generally and thought that judges were wimps. The left thought that uh, the sentences were too light for white-collar offenses. And frequently when you have strange bedfellows, you end up with unnatural acts. And that's what you ended up with. <laughs> with, the, with the sentencing guidelines. But there's a, another problem, and it's a much more defined problem. It's raised to some degree by Jan's question. Um, what do judges do? One of the, I think, corrosive effects of the sentencing guidelines was to make of judges certified public accountants, or really kids in third grade arithmetic, adding up numbers to give this illusory sense that you had some precision to your sentences. Uh, I think for a number of judges, for all judges, there is the danger that uh, once was described in describing a Supreme Court justice that you end up using the sentencing guidelines more or less like a drunk uses a lamppost, not so much for illumination, but something to grab a hold of. <laughs> and that is a corrosive effect on the process of judging itself. We live in a time in which every one of our institutions is subject to uh, some degree of questioning. I think Jennifer put her finger on it that the other branches of government have been very successful in dumping it all on the courts where some of the resolution of these things should not be. But one of the places where the resolution of these important processes should be is in the sentencing. And in the sentencing itself, it is a very unique, very personal uh, and very difficult to describe. I, I read the, the transcript of the Supreme Court argument in the Claiborne and Rita case, which uh, are pending. Yes, I'm sorry. The, I read the transcript of the, uh, the oral argument in Rita and Claiborne, which are the, were two of the uh, Supreme Court cases on sentencing guidelines, only one of which will come down, I guess, this year. And what I was struck by is nine appellate judges, only one of whom I believe has ever sentenced anyone, talking about one particular issue as if sentencing depended on one particular issue. It is not. It's a gestalt. You have this poor devil in front of you. You have the victims uh, in front of you. And that is of the essence of judging. And so the danger of all of this, it seems to me, is that it is eviscerated to fairly substantial uh, extent what it is, what it has been to be a judge uh, and what it is that society traditionally has thought it means to be a judge. This is uh, addressed to uh, Attorney General Coakley. Um, you commented on an eye for an eye as being a very, very strict judgment, which it was originally, uh, consistent with the question of how you interpret the law. An eye for an eye evolved over the ages as actually a limitation on, on punishment. Uh, it was not, you did not die. In fact, it was very rarely used for the death penalty. So as people became more, quote, civilized, quote, uh, they began to realize that you did not, in fact, you, you never killed somebody for an eye. It didn't say that you killed for an eye. But that is very consistent with what you're talking about because people came, came to realize that it is very, very difficult to have a specific penalty for every single crime. Yes. Uh, I just wanted to uh, address a question that um, Mr. Kelly brought up earlier to Attorney General Coakley, which was, how does a prosecutor decide which crimes to 
to prosecute? Who to, what, is it a matter of just evidence? Is it a matter of, uh, like, uh, you know, a group of people commit the same crime? Uh, why does, you know, you prosecute one of them, give a plea deal to another one? What goes into who, who if everyone does the crime, who does the time? Um, good question. Uh, I, think, I think that question is answered somewhat differently on the state level. In my former life as a district attorney, you know, if someone came in and said she'd been um, raped, then we tried to figure out who it was and if we had enough evidence. If someone, if we had a dead body, uh, in some ways murders are the easiest cases. Uh, and, and by the way, Claudio didn't have any advantage of DNA testing uh, in this play because he might have had a defense. Um, we, you know, we go after those things. A bank is robbed. We try and find the bank robbers. What's different, I think, in some of the things I do now as attorney general and what many of the federal prosecutors do is target a group of people, a group of crimes, and try to make a case. And in the course of doing that, it often does involve discretion. That doesn't get the kind of light of day that a sentence may get. Um, and it may involve giving deals to people so they testify. It's why we have discovery rules about um, showing people who have um, cooperated because they may have a reason to lie, they may be biased, whatever the reason is. So it can get fairly complicated when you start to say, as prosecutors, we're going to target X because we want to send a message if we're looking at. Um, in, in fact, on the state level, given, and, and Judge Wolf is correct, that the resources are so few um, that it often comes down to what we have before us. Do we have evidence? Do we have witnesses? Um, is there enough that we can make here? And I, and I do uh, recognize there's a lot of discretion involved what prosecutors do. But in the end, if the law says you can't speed on the highway um, and you are stopped for speeding, it is not a defense to say to the state trooper, um, you let those other five people go. Because there is something in the law that says we have the ability to provide for deterrence. What you cannot do is do that arbitrarily, capriciously, in a way that's unfair or discriminatory. But we can't possibly go after everybody who has violated the law. Uh, and so we do make those calls. Um, prosecutors, at least at the state level, are elected. So we have to answer for what we do and why we do it, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. You, everybody has a different opinion on. Um, and so uh, the, the approach that you take... Uh, as a prosecutor, you assume is going to be subject to questioning. Why did you plead that case out? Why did you plea bargain something? Uh, we all take uh, incredible heat for that, whether it is a, uh, a murder of a child in the nanny case or it is uh, um, two guys who put guerrilla advertising around Boston and bring the whole city to all. Some people thought they should have gotten the death penalty and others couldn't understand why they had been charged. So um, those kinds of cases really raise a lot of those issues that are, are difficult and complicated, I think. Just, just one, it, one of the problems is on the state side and on the federal side, the criminal laws that we're enforcing are oftentimes chaotic. So that you can prosecute someone on the state side for uh, possession of drugs in a schoolyard, mandatory minimum, possession of drugs not near a school. And the prosecutor oftentimes has the discretion as to how to charge things. On the federal side, the code is totally chaotic. You have someone charged with uh, a drug offense, someone with what's called a telephone count. And that's where the problem comes in. As, as, as um, Dennis was saying, it's not just a question, and I think this play brings it out, it's not just a question of rules strictly applied to everyone, because then discretion oozes to the people who make the decision as to who to prosecute. And it's not just a question of wishy-washy discretion in judges. It is something in between, and we are constantly trying to find that medium. I'm curious about the. Uh, is there any place for mercy in the courtroom? 
Yes. <laughs> and, and how do you view it? What, what is mercy? You're talking to me? Certainly <laughs> <laughs> someone else wants to answer. It's it's maybe the single most important thing going on in the courtroom, but it's all um, it's it's a a subtext. It's an undercurrent. There's no guideline for mercy. Um, It is a very difficult thing to sentence someone to prison, even if it's only for six months, never mind 242 months or, you know, some of the sentences that we give Um, under the new post Booker sentencing guidelines. Um, I will depart, uh, it's not a departing, impose a non-guideline sentence on basis that is little more than mercy because it doesn't feel right. I'm sure my colleagues do the same thing. Um, that's not a legal basis for it, but it is the human act that you are performing. You feel that the sentence is too long and you want to be, to some extent, merciful. If you're too merciful, you go down too far, you're violating some other principles, but but reducing the sentence to the extent you can. Felix Frankfurter once described his uh, friend, the poet Robert Frost, as a poet of compassion but not passion. And I I think there's that distinction uh, that comes into play for a judge properly performing as well. Uh, Some compassion is sometimes justified for the defendant. We because of the cases that are now being prosecuted in federal court, see an almost inexorable procession of people who were born to single mothers when their mothers were 15 years old and haven't really ever had a chance for a very decent uh, life. And you can have some compassion for that, but your obligation to be faithful to the law, your obligation uh, to be concerned about the victims or the pernicious effects of uh, young people having guns or selling drugs has to come into play as well. And it, it goes to what uh, Judge Woodlock was saying. There's, you know, there's no precise formula for it, but there's a combination of qualities that I think one would want in a judge. I'm proud to say that I know it's uh, reflected in my colleagues on the, the stage, and it's something I mentioned in my opening question. I think judges who perform with an understanding uh, that they are human, they too are fallible, who have this common sense that the judged and the judges are both human, uh, but also that the victims are out there, or also that uh, the people through their representatives have made these laws and generated these guidelines. Uh, it's It's a complex mix of things that operate differently in particular cases. I would say, speaking from the perspective of an appellate court judge, um, where mercy is rarely uh, what we get to do, um, we look, as we look at proceedings in the trial court, sentencings in particular, but all kinds of proceedings, for fairness, to ensure that the judge has given due consideration to the appropriate factors and has acted in a fair and balanced way. Uh, I suppose that's not mercy per se, uh, but it is a way to ensure some standards uh, and some basic um, considerations that everyone is entitled to when they go into a trial court. This gentleman has been standing 
Um, if the play is about how harshly a law should be enforced, and I always like to bring in my day's reading of the newspaper whenever I can, um, I, think it's, I think it's interesting that we currently have a, a judge trying to make up his mind about various aspects of his decision. I, th I think we need to get to some specific cases and I think the case that most relates to this play in today's news is Judge Reggie Walton, considering how harshly he will handle his decision. He will handle the decision about Scooter Libby. Uh, there apparently are a dozen famous legal scholar, uh, scholars in today's globe who are reported as coming from both the liberal and conservative traditions, like uh, Alan Dershowitz and Robert Bork, um, are giving him advice and urging him to be less harsh, I think. I'd be fascinated if any members of the panel care to comment about this or indeed any other specific case other than the one in Measure for Measure. I'll be uh, foolish, but hopefully also... Uh, judicious. None of us, I think, would uh, express a view, a, a, a real specific view on a sentence in another case. Our own cases are very difficult. But I, I think I'd make the same, a, a couple of general observations because I was reading the newspaper while I was reading this case. And it cast as Angelo. Uh, I tried hard to see if I could find any redeeming feature in Angelo. Uh, I think I found possibly uh, two, although they didn't outweigh the bad. Uh, one is, and it's been alluded to earlier, I went after the uh, son of a nobleman. I didn't uh, pick on one of the really helpless people. And the second thing I said at the beginning, you went after them too. But. <laughs> When I prosecuted somebody for fornication, I, I probably uh, could have got uh, Bill Lee and maybe even uh, John Montgomery in there. But I went for the son of the nobleman. Uh, and, and the second thing that I, I was able to uh, grasp for is I said at the beginning uh, to Aeschylus, Doug Woodlock, you know, if I commit the same crime, uh, I expect the same punishment. And I was still saying the same thing at the end. From what I can read in the newspapers, and I probably know better than anybody that the newspapers don't give you a reliable account of what's going on in the courtroom, Judge Walton sentenced uh, Mr. Libby within the guidelines. And in the, in the, the guidelines are the, in the, in, in strict guidelines are the, uh, uh, been heavily advocated by the present administration uh, until, uh, control of Congress changed, uh, there was real question about whether the limited discretion we now have was going to be restricted further. So, you know, Judge Walton was appointed, I believe, by Judge Bush, by President Bush. Uh, he, <laughs> no, uh, the present president, uh, he is regarded as a judge who's he had been the equivalent of a state court judge in the District of Columbia. Everything's federal, but they have a superior court like our state superior court. He's generally known, you know, as somebody who's tough on a range of uh, 
criminals. And I suspect if somebody studied it, he essentially uh, performed in a way that would be consistent with the concept that justice should be blind. That this is, he has guidelines, he has practices, he might be generally regarded as a tough sentencer, and he didn't make an exception uh, for a powerful person who used to work in an administration that's usually advocating very severe sentences. And the, you know, the prosecutor pushed for a very stiff sentence, which reflects, I think, some of the things that we were talking about earlier. Um, we've, we're going to have time for one more question, so if you would like to... Um, I sort of would like to come back to the issue of compassion. Um, when you're talking about compassion, why we as a society and not just the judi judicial system think about compassion only for the person who is being judged and not as much for the victims? Most of the crimes are committed within the same class of people. And so chances are not only the uh, accused, but the victim probably had you know, 15-year-old mother and have not chose to commit a crime. And in a sense, you sort of admitted to it that there have been numerous cases when they stood in front of a um, state court and only got a sentence of three months, and all of a sudden they got a sentence of many years for the same crime, which is they keep doing it over and over again. It also does not... Uh, teach everybody else as strongly not to do it. It does not work for prevention very well. So my question is why compassion is only one-sided most of the time? Let me, try, I, to, let me try to start. If okay, I, and I, you know, the other issue that that raises, we are hearing from victims and the families of victims more frequently in courtrooms, so maybe you could address that, some of the judges as well. Well, that, that was precisely what oh, I no, was... Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. It's precisely what I was <laughs> well, going I to say. Uh, when, I, when I began practicing law uh, as a public defender uh, 33, 34 years ago, uh, victims were given fairly short shrift. They really were not viewed as anything other than sort of necessary witnesses. There certainly are cases in which, which victims do not feel that they have been given justice. Uh, that, uh, that has improved remarkably in my 28, 29 years of practice. And I know the Attorney General is very experienced in this area as well. Can I just address part of what you had to say? And, and there's a certain artificiality about our conversation. We're talking about uh, how many months, how many years, as if that were the resolution of much more deep-seated societal problems. The real issue, the real problem, I think, is we have no follow-on after sentencing. The problem in the state courts is it's three months because they don't have enough room to put people into prisons, and they certainly aren't doing as much as could be done because of money to follow on with probation. We try to do some of that, but the most um, unhappy aspect, I suppose, is I pronounce a sentence. It uh, reflects the moral condemnation of the community, I suppose. Uh, it reflects some sum of numbers, and then the guy disappears. And he disappears into the Bureau of Prisons where he gets okay treatment. But ultimately, what we're really concerned about is don't come back here again. Don't do it again. Can we do something that will prevent you from doing it again so that there aren't more victims who are equally uh, entitled to compassion out there not receiving it. That's the real fundamental problem, a limitation on our own power to do all of the things that should be done to try to advance uh, rather than uh, simply crystallize societal problems. 
Well, I think that I think that's right. Also, the question about, you know, the federal judges responded to the questions about discretion versus guidelines in terms of the drug cases and the drug war. We see overwhelmingly drug cases and drug war in the drug war. And as to that, uh, uh, the victim is society. It's more abstract. It's not sort of a zero sum game. In addition, so I, I think that we see this whole question, and as to that, I, th- I think this is something that Dennis Saylor said, um, the disparities, black and white, are enormous. Someone said now that based on the federal sentencing guidelines and the drug uh, guidelines in particular, one out of every four mother of an African-American male needs to be told that her son will have some encounter with the criminal justice system as a result of the drug laws. One out of every four. So the, the, the drug war distorts the sentencing picture entirely. You're talking about violent crime, and that's a different issue as to which the victim is very clear and very present. But I, I think we take Doug's point. Sentences in the federal bench and all around the country have gone up and up and up and up. We have to stop thinking about what makes us feel good and start thinking about what works, what makes sense as punishment to stop the problem, not just to vent our spleen. And with that, well, I I think that um, Dan is saying that I think we're supposed to go to seven, and we've already gone on a little longer. Should we call it a night? I I had one simple comment to help you round up this brilliant choice of measure for measure as your play. Here we are in Massachusetts where fornication is a misdemeanor and adultery is a felony. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you all very much. And let's first of all give a round of applause to Dan Kelly, who did such a spectacular job getting all this. And then to the cast, who I think if they get tired of the law, other careers uh, you know you can tap into. So thank you all so much. And thank you guys for coming.